237 silent proscription and you should always do as we say and not as we do yeah looks like those nice thought police folks are coming to help hello friends and uh, welcome in to this the 237th edition of Fusebox, cunningly entitled Silent Proscription, which I, I, I have to admit, it, it, sounds, it sounds a little bit like a bad Tom Clancy ripoff, but uh, we'll get into all this uh, shortly. I am your banning all banned book bannings host, Mark Rose, and uh, over there, resplendent in... Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> Are you... Are you wearing a, a raincoat? Uh, yeah. It's about as sunny a day as we get here, so look, what... Look, man, it, it's the only clean thing I had. <laughs> Over there, <laughs> the, the all-weather manipulator of the Sonic Matrix, Milk Canes, everybody. Well, thank you kindly. The only thing missing from your attire there is the uh, rain hat. Oh, hell, man, it's too warm for that. <laughs> Oh, of course, you're right, after all. We're in the blazing heat of November. <laughs> well, in some places, uh, that might be right. <laughs> well, friends, we have a show-filled show loaded in for you this time out. Um, our title comes from the word proscription, which is uh, not to be confused with Prescription. Yeah, although you may need meds by the end of this one. Nay. Nay, I say, Mr. Keynes. We do not endorse or otherwise recommend the use of any uh, pharmaceutical on this here program. Nope. Proscription uh, is a word for mandating or uh, prohibiting something, and uh, that's kind of the deal we're dealing in, as Mr. Zappa has said. On uh, this edition of the show, a bit of a follow-up on some uh, AI news. <laughs> Mostly fails, of course, but uh, we've also got a brand new Grindhouse Minute from our buddy 42nd Street Pete this time out. And uh, Pete's got a piece on a veritable classic of Spaghetti Westerns starring none other than Lee Van Cleef. And uh, speaking of Pete... We had the occasion to chat the other day, and uh, that particular conversation quickly turned into an impromptu interview that uh, spanned a bunch of topics. But among them was this rather alarming thing that's happening to various small press publishers and, frankly, a lot of other small retailers of a uh, certain type of material. Um, are you talking about... Slime fondling? Uh... Yeah. I mean, I see these kids on YouTube all the time. They're dipping their hands into buckets of green, sometimes blue, and sometimes even glittery slime. And then, uh, squeezing it, and it... I don't know. It's really creepy, bro. (laughs) 
spend a lot of time watching those videos, Mr. Keynes? Uh, research. You know, for the show. Of course. Sure. Hey, uh, a bit of a uh, programming note. You, you may recall a month back I uh, collaborated with a chap named Brett Berman, also known as PQ River, on his show called The Appreciator, which can be found at unsug.com, O-N-S-U-G.com, as uh, we endeavored to cover the albums of uh, Frank Zappa. Yeah, we started with the first two, Freak Out and uh, Absolutely Free, and now uh, have another submission for your oral consideration. Uh, We tackled the next two albums in the canon of Zappa, Lumpy Gravy, and we're only in it for the money. Or, if you prefer, lumpy money. (laughs) Wow. So you're really doing this. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It's a bit of a commitment. (laughs) Uh, As there are way more than 126 albums in his discography. But uh, we're up to the challenge and uh, have limited this rather ambitious uh, retrospective to just the basic ones, you know, not not, not the bootlegs or uh, posthumous releases, at least for now, anyway. So did that life extender kit come in then? <laughs> yeah, I know. But hey, it's fun as hell to uh, reacquaint ourselves to this stuff after time. I mean, I, I actually had to go back and uh, revisit. We're only in it for the money because it's been years since I've heard that one. Uh, Lumpy Gravy, on the other hand, is in my library rotation as uh, one might say. Yeah, you dig that one, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the uh, earliest examples of some of Zappa's classical writing, and uh, it's fabulous, really. Healthy dollop of tape weirdness in there, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, and but also, the one album in his discography that he couldn't actually play on. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, so if you want to hear that story... Go on over to the link conveniently supplied in the show description and take a listen. It's a fun show. The Appreciator Zappa Albums 2 with uh, yours truly. Uh, Our next two will be Reuben and the Jets and one of my personal favorites once again, Uncle Meat. Yeah. When we return, some crazy AI fails... A new installment of the Grindhouse Minute with 42nd Street Pete and a brief conversation that Pete and I had about a a rather disturbing trend in the world of small publishing, which might just be a whole lot more portentous than we think. So, stay with us, or won't we? You'll be shapelier, honestly. Just want to take a pause in the proceedings here to let you know about our friends at Grindhouse Resurrection Magazine, the premier source of all things uh, Grindhouse. In issue number two, one of my all-time favorite guilty pleasures, a film called Street Trash, directed by Jim Murrow, is featured in great detail by a guy who should know he was in it. Mike Lackey, who played Fred the Bum in this glorious melt movie from 1987. A mysterious beverage appears on Skid Row called Tenafly Viper, and when consumed has, uh, shall we say, a disastrous aftertaste. In glorious, oversaturated color. 
It's what makes Grindhouse Resurrection a valuable resource, friends. Articles written by the folks who were there, and like in Mike's case here, were a part of it. 96 pages of glossy goodness in each issue and not a speck of cereal. Check it out in the link in the show description. Grindhouse Resurrection Magazine. TheFuseBoxShow.com Friends, it's time for another installment of... The Hot Wire of Science! Okay, this time out, we've got a couple gobsmackingly wondrous fails. Well, one is actually just a ridiculous statement made in print by a British telephone company, but uh, we'll get into all that in a bit. First, we got to start in, well, my hometown, as it turns out, San Francisco, California, for a tale of woe. Back in September of uh, this year, an AI-powered smoothie shop opened called Better Blends. It claimed it was the, quote, most personalized restaurant ever. The concept is fairly simple, really. The customer would input their preferences into an app, and then the AI would then conjure up a hyper-personalized recipe based on your preferences. This, then, uh, would be blended by the shop's employees. Now, these are real people, not AI clone bots. Were there too many fingers in the smoothie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, co-founder Michael Parlando told the uh, San Francisco Standard that they, the store, wanted to part the noise. This is a real application to solve a challenge, he said. Well, you know what they say about that road to hell. <laughs> well, <laughs> just weeks after its opening, it appears that the store is completely Abandoned. Not one wrinkly organic kiwi left to squeeze. According to the report, as of uh, October 20th, the doors were locked, and a note was posted on the door saying, quote, temporarily closed, and that uh, staff would be back in an hour. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one. Uh, that one that says, like, uh, we're just doing some remodeling. Uh, we'll be back real soon. <laughs> well, locals had reported that the place was, was locked up for weeks. Uh, a week or two later, the place was emptied out completely, abandoned but for a lonely trash dumpster. You know, it says here that uh, the place did receive some pretty good reviews, but... Uh... The only photo ever posted to Google was back in uh, July. Uh, seems to be an AI-generated thing, though. Quoting uh, this, this reviewer guy, he says, The smoothies the folks are holding feature garbled and nonsensical text, and their fingers appear to be oddly long and smooth. <laughs> yeah, and all the models in those photos have the heads of giraffes. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of folks had hopes for the business, but uh, as one reviewer wrote, it was often opened late and closed early. They changed their hours after a week of being open, and then one day they put up a sign, temporarily closed, we'll be back in one hour, and they haven't been back since. Well, evidently the uh, Better Blends website's still up, and it looks like they're... uh still looking for investors who would like to, quote, 
contribute to the next generation in dining. What the hell does that mean? The next generation has us all drinking smoothies as uh, fine dining? Yeah, sure, you know, some nice piano jazz and a candelabra on every table. Well, our final fail example here is really just in the form of uh, simple logic from folks you'd think should know better. NASA? No, not them. They're still trying to get that Mars mission to look as good as Stanley Kubrick's 2001 effects. Yeah, yeah. Uh Uh, uh, No, no, this one comes from the uh, British Telephone Service. Uh, BT's chief digital innovation officer wants the entire world to stop whining about all this AI stuff that's going to put all the humans out of work. Because, quoting here, horses didn't complain. When cars were invented. What? Yep. In an interview with raconteur Harmine Mehta, who BT plopped into the newly created role in 2021, was discussing how media can seemingly always concentrate their focus on the negative outcomes of AI. Quoting again from the article here, Society changes and jobs morph. I don't know how horses felt when the car was invented, but they didn't complain that they were put out of a job. They didn't go on strike. It's part of evolution. Some jobs will change, some new ones will be created, and some will no longer be needed. Yeah, I don't think most horses had to financially support a family of six. (laughs) Indeed, Mr. Keynes. She goes on to say... The media here is creating a level of paranoia that's going to paralyze this country. It creates more emotional problems for me than I do for myself. I've spent the past two years trying to convince my company that human intelligence and artificial intelligence can work together. Two years, huh? Well, it might just be that they see a bunch of folks out of a job. Now, you know what? Seems to me that there's a, a, a few people in there who are at least weighing the consequences as opposed to driving her fiery Cadillac into a pool of gasoline. A BT spokesman uh, later had this statement regarding uh, Harmeen's statement uh, saying, Harmeen was using a metaphor to stretch a point. Poorly. <laughs> In the past, during periods of uh, technological change, people acquired new skills and ultimately new jobs were created. We will work closely with our union partners in this AI transition, as we always have, particularly over the coming years, as this change picks up momentum. You mean the coming minutes, don't you? I mean, this shit waits for nobody. Well... The folks at BT say, uh, quote, in the context of AI, we are building upskilling into our programs via our My Campus platform to ensure that we bring our colleagues up to speed to take advantage of the technological revolution and place them at the forefront of this new AI age. What the hell is upskilling? (laughs) Yeah, it's just more jargon, Mr. Keynes. It's standing more for enforced adaptation or enforced early retirement. To add to this, BT itself is going through something of a transformation that involves embracing AI, which will in turn affect thousands of their employees. CEO Philip Jansen said in May, 
For a company like BT, there is a huge opportunity to use AI to be more efficient. We will be a huge beneficiary of AI. And the Tech Market View chairman Richard Hallway quipped, So, horses just accepted being replaced by cars and just got on with it? (laughs) The veteran analyst said, He asked ChatGPT, how many horses are in the world today, and was told it was half the volume before the prevalence of the motor car. He said that, quote, rather than go on strike, they went to the slaughterhouse. So that bid is probably not so stupid an analogy after all. <laughs> Oy. So again, not to put too fine a point on it, friends, we, we just need to tap the brakes a bit and uh, start placing some logical and uh, uh, tactile controls in place, at least until uh, uh, manageable regulations and boundaries can be uh, reasonably set. Just saying. Just saying. And speaking of control, I was chatting with our buddy 42nd Street Pete, who uh, hosts the Grindhouse Minute segment right here on this very program, uh, which, by the way, a new one is coming up in a bit. So uh, we were talking the other day about some planned changes uh, to the magazine he publishes, uh, which is, of course, a sponsor of this very show, Grindhouse Resurrection. And as we were talking, he revealed some rather disturbing events he was encountering recently. And and I said, hey, 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 wait. Do you mind if if, if we record this? Because I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there that have absolutely no idea what's going on here in our algorithmically controlled world so, uh, kind of as a public service, here's a, a, a brief excerpt of that chat. Let's just start at the beginning here and maybe just talk a little bit about some of the uh, trials and tribulations and, and uh, pitfalls of uh, small press publishing that you've encountered. Okay, well, when I first started, you know, going back with the other publisher with Grindhouse Purgatory, I wasn't really on top of what was going on. And he was going through Amazon. It might have been Create Space or whatever the hell it was. But then I noticed that certain things were sort of being omitted. Mm. I guess he wanted to stay on the up and up with Amazon. And I think that the tip off was that somebody did an article on Jane Mansfield and sent in a bunch of photos. Well, we can't print them. Why? Well, we can't print them. And I'm like, well, there's other stuff up on Amazon that, you know, my own DVD line, some of it's still remaining on Amazon. I haven't kicked off yet, but I'm wondering why. So then, you know, the whole thing was with them, I never knew which which end was up. And then, you know, it became personal. A bunch of animosity started and I ceased publication of that. And most of my writers wanted to keep it going. So we decided to do Grindhouse Resurrection. And instead of going through Amazon and dealing with their bullshit, we figured we'd go with a local printer. And I was introduced to Eric Wright, who puts out Midnight Magazine with his wife, Angie. They could lay it out, format it. I would collect all the articles, you know, do my end of the writing. And John Schatzer would edit it together. We did number one. was strictly get it through me, word of mouth, you know, before, you know, you guys were cool enough to put up that website for me. We actually had a reprint of it. I think it sold a couple hundred issues. 
Mm-hmm. Now we go into two. I had the William Winkler interview, which was huge. And, yeah. you know, I could have been, you know, a douche and cut it in two parts, guaranteeing a sale for number three, but I didn't want to go that route. So we did this whole thing. It was almost 100 pages. Well, then my girl Lorena tried to upload the first magazine, the draft to digital. So she had it up there. It got accepted. It went on eight internet platforms. And then as soon as it hit Amazon, bang, that was it. Three nude photos, done. And then they said, they emailed me about this. Mm. Well, no, you actually didn't. And they said they emailed her. And no, you actually didn't. So we're not getting any emails. And she kept resubmitting Grindhouse Resurrection, Grindhouse Resurrection. Bang, we finally got an email saying that there is no way, shape, or form they're ever going to publish this book. And... You can retitle it, and we will know, and if you persist on submitting it, we will terminate your account. So I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Because, like I said, I never got anything at all as far as, you know, um, cease and desist, can't do this, you know, yada, yada. So I'm, like, baffled by this whole thing. Then I find out that uh, Eric from Midnight was trying stuff. We were all trying stuff. And it just didn't work. Amazon couldn't upload it, whatever. And it became a disaster. So then these guys were getting frustrated, Eric, that is, because Eric's still doing shows. And, you know, he goes, they walk right by me. He goes, they pick up the magazine. They say how nice it is. And then they go over and buy a $40 special edition DVD. Yeah, yeah. He said, this is bullshit. I can't do this anymore. The other thing, too, is most of the guys involved other than me, have regular jobs. They, they do it in their spare time. So we're not the only ones that fold it up. Uh, Gravery Unusual folded up. A couple other ones folded up. Because if you can't get your product out there, what are you going to do? Many of these small publishers, they're also up against this weird phenomenon right now that has the bulk of society moving away from hard copy anything. And, you know, magazines and newspapers and stuff like that that is really experiencing some serious hardships. The folks that are interested in this kind of work, and myself included, we actually want the tangible product. We actually want the magazine and the writing and all of that because there's a thing there. It's kind of like what the vinyl collectors feel these days about, you know, collecting the tactile property and all of that. I can't read a book online. Right. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes, exactly. You know, and I go through a book every other day. So I, I don't understand the whole electronic thing. And the other thing is, too, what happens when the power goes out, you know? Exactly. And everybody laughs when I say that. I says, well, think back to the blackout. You know, the West Coast didn't have, but the East Coast had it for, I don't know, like like almost 18 hours and everything ground to a halt. Now, is it my imagination or is it seemingly targeted towards smaller publishers? We seem to think that. You know, the whole thing is Amazon can basically outprice a local printer as far as, you know, paper and stuff like that. Print on demand, yeah. But, you know, then as soon as all the local printers are gone, you're stuck with Amazon. Right. And to be honest with you, you know, I I compare what was to what I'm doing now, and the quality of the magazine is a lot better than the one done by Amazon. You know, I'm not knocking my former product because it was good. Right. But, you know, just the whole layout and stuff and the waste of paper in it was ridiculous, where this basically the first magazine, we used to have like 92 pages in Grindhouse Purgatory, where we fit more content in 68 pages in the first issue of uh, Grindhouse Resurrection. Yeah, and it's packed 
I mean, yeah, yeah this is wall to wall. There is no wasted space here at all. Yeah, well, now the other problem is the, these print shops are old. They're all family run. And right. this printer, basically, I'm going to get 50 more copies of number two to have them in stock for anybody who wants it. Cool. But after that, they can't print anymore because the, the machines can't handle it. That that amount of paper. Oh, I see. You know, 68 page. Yeah, they can. But I can see the handwriting on the wall. I know, I know you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. This is my, for like a letter words, business model for this whole thing. I don't mind breaking even because it's more, to me, it's more about keeping the whole thing alive. And, you know, from people's perspective who were there and people who, you know, know their stuff and, you know, are good writers and whatever subject they seem to tackle, you know, like the fans seem to like, like this vintage paperback thing, monster kids things, you know, stuff like that. Right. As long as I break even on issue three, John and I are going to figure out a way to keep it going because basically, you know, we have enough material to do a fourth issue, which would have been a blow-off issue, but we don't want to do that. We don't want to see if we can keep it going. Right. So we might have to title change it to get, to get it out. That leads me to this next question, and I think this is something that is uh, seemingly confusing to a lot of people. And let's talk about this for just a second. That term, grindhouse, let's talk about what that really means. Okay, well— I was given two interpretations of it. All the theaters on 42nd Street, Return of the Century, and, you know, Minsky's Burlesque was in there and something, so it was sort of like the bump and grind show. Yeah, right. Dave Friedman gave me another version of it, that these theaters sat there and ground out films (laughs) 24-7, which was close because basically most of these places ran from 10 in the morning till 3 o'clock in the morning, closed and reopened at 10. Mm-hmm. So th- there was a couple like um, the harem, which was a porn grinder. It was 24 seven. There was like a four hour interval to clean up the mess and open up again. Right. Right. So, you know, that, that was my interpretation and da- that's what Dave told me, you know, and that's coming from a guy who basically was in the business for decades. His whole life. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. So what happened now is, and you know, I might be partially to blame for some of this, but, I'm going back to what happened with eBay because I used to sell porn on eBay. So did a billion other guys. Well, eBay decided, you know, the whole corporate mentality or whatever the fuck they were doing, they decided no more adults only section, eliminating like thousands and thousands of listings. Mm. So I don't know if you know Alpha Blue Archives. Yes, I do. In California. I sure do. You know, I talk to Dave on and off. He's, you know, some people have a bad opinion of Dave. Dave's always been good with me. We've always done business. You know, he's always treated me well. I go by that. So he's on there and he goes, what do you think we should do? And I go, I don't know. And I says, why don't you just say they're Grindhouse films? Because I pretty much had blown out everything I had. Right. So he was still in it. So another buddy of mine, Adam Trash, calls me up and he goes, they're listening on there. They're listening on there. Like, they got them out on the Grindhouse films. I just bought two 16 millimeter prints. And I'm like, okay. So I did a couple of things myself and got away with it, but got caught a couple of times. You know, you get three day suspension slap on the wrist, you know, never do this again. Right. Some people that were doing it weren't too smart because if, if you position the stuff a certain way, it's sort of benign. You don't, you know, unless you really know what it is, you don't know what it is. So people were doing shit like putting Swedish erotica right out in the open and stuff. Okay. <laughs> sloppy. And getting kicked off. Yeah, sloppy. So what I think happened was this got put into whatever bot 
AI or whatever these assholes are using to police the systems. And it's kicking up the word grindhouse is porn. It's getting sabotaged by, uh, by yeah. terminology. Yeah, I, I know, I know um, it was something about somebody saw my former publisher at a show and he put out a, ma- a magazine with a grindhouse title. Supposedly the scuttlebutt is he can't get nobody to put it up either. Jeez. Yeah. That's why I say I may have to, you know, rebrand it. We are, I already wrote an editorial. It's going to be in three, and John's going to put in what's happening. Dealing with Eric and Angie was great. They're great people. They put out a great magazine themselves, but I, I understand what's going on. So I, we basically, you know, got to suck it up and, you know, try to keep it going ourselves. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm wondering, are there uh, print-on-demand options out there that are not— uh, so exorbitantly overpriced that they, you, know, you could actually work with them? Well, Draft2Digital isn't bad. We could probably slip it through there if I change the title. I see. You know, I honestly think at this point the word grindhouse is poison. <laughs> that's just, that's crazy. It's crazy. I know, but that that's the way, you know, things work in, in the wonderful world of the internet here. Mm. Holy carp. Kind of creepy. Kind of weird. Yeah, and this is how it works, too. Sideline a few things, and before you know it, that thing you really kind of dug isn't around anymore. Just vanished. Like it was never around. Well, you know what? As uh, we're fond of saying around here... Well, mostly you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, guilty as charged, yes. I've point- I-, I have pointed out many times that uh, when things, whatever they are, Start to become, uh, here it comes, vague. They then start to ever so slightly fade from societal awareness and soon just evaporate altogether. What Pete's describing here and uh, what, what I'm actually seeing all too frequently is this subtle and slow erosion of uh, certain ideas, uh, art forms, expressions, etc., Uh, Well, like in this case, you lump the word grindhouse in with porn, then you immediately create a cultural pariah. One that must be vanquished off the face of the earth. To protect the precious bodily fluids of, of, well, I don't know anymore. Well, and on the other hand, you also get some folks really charged to see it or read it or whatever, and maybe they all seek it out because of all the, the, the noise around it. Yeah, if you make a big enough noise about it. But if you're quiet and slowly smother any thought of it, the noise around it goes out, and so does the public interest and awareness. Well, I mean, having to rebrand the magazine is kind of crappy, bro. But, I mean, hey, if you'll get it out there, you do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I do think Pete's attitude is correct. I mean, you got to play the hand you're dealt. It, it would be extremely difficult to turn this uh, uh, puritanical train around on a dime. It's going to take a lot of brake tapping to do that for sure. And, and by the way, uh, there is a lot more from this conversation that I will be uh, featuring in future shows. But if you want to hear the full chat... Well, then I recommend you go to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Fusebox Show and check it out. Speaking of Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> no, speaking of crazy as fuck segues. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Staying with our buddy Pete here, it's time once again for another Grindhouse Minute. And this time, Pete revisits an all-time classic 
with the iconic Lee Van Cleef. A rifle that never misses. Pistol that shoots two ways. And a look that means you're dead before you draw. The man and the gun are one called Zapata. And now it's time for another Grindhouse Minute with 42nd Street Pete. This is 42nd Street Pete bringing you a Grindhouse Minute. Here's one, 1969 Sabata. Now, Lee Van Cleef was just the big a draw on 42nd Street as Jim Brown, Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood. And this was sort of him at his zenith because he played, the tagline was, the man with the gun sight eyes comes to kill. Well, he's completely dressed in black. He never misses. He has trick pistols. And it's like he foils a robbery, but is blackmailing the robbers who were the town fathers. And every time they try to kill him, the ante goes up. And there's other guys. William Berger is a banjo, has a repeating rifle hidden in his banjo. And Pedro Sanchez is Carincha, a guy with a knife. And Nick Jordan is, I think, Indio, this acrobatic type of guy. And the weird thing was, Nick Jordan was in a bunch of these things, but his, his real name was Aldo Canty, and he was also taken out in a mob hit. Stay safe, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Now, I dig me some Lee Van Cleef. Now, he could play a really bad guy or a really good guy, and it was always great. <laughs> you know, I think Pete has a T-shirt that has the initials WWLVCD on the front. <laughs> you mean, what would Lee Van Cleef do? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I dig it. <laughs> Another wonder segment from uh, 42nd Street Pete there. And uh, next month's installment is a real obscurity. The Northdale Cemetery Massacre. So be sure to join us for that one. And uh, with that, we will call it a show, friends. But uh, not before thanking our contributors to this edition of the show. Jody Lorimer for excellence in ideifications. And, of course, 42nd Street Pete for his generous participation and candor. Thanks as well to the involuntary sonic muscle spasm of mixitude, <laughs> Mill Keynes, for technical assistance and so forth, ever so, so on. A pleasure as always, folks. You're going to break a bladder by saying shit like that. Anyway, a pleasure as always. And folks, you can have a bigly huge impact on this show if you join us over there on our Patreon page. It's a hoot and a holler and... You get a bunch of free stuff, too, just for signing up. Yes, instant free swag, early show access, and content exclusive to Patreon. Well, the full chat with uh, 42nd Street Pete, for example. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Fusebox Show. Pitch in. You'd be surprised how little that really is. And how far it goes to help the show out. We'd really, really appreciate that. 
And thanks, as always, to you, friends, for pushing play on this edition of Fusebox. Lots of stuff out there clamoring for your daily attention, so uh, we are honored you'd spend some time with us. I have been your walking softly, but dragging the halls of Congress with me, host Mark Rowe, saying, until our next cartoon.